Um, so I am going to talk today about who public apologies are actually offered on behalf of. Who is the subject that apologizes in a public apology? Um, you know, public apolo official apologies are public in a number of ways. You know, like where they're offered, how they're offered, the form they take. Um, but of course, the you know the key typically is that they have to be offered by somebody who is a public official, and they have to be offered by that person qua public official, right? So for example, some of the apologies that Bill Clinton offered uh, in Africa, in Guatemala, you know, there is actually some doubt as to whether or not those count as official apologies because it's ambiguous what exactly the capacity was in which he was speaking. Was he speaking for the office of the president, right, in the sense of president as foreign policy initiator? Was he just talking in terms of office of the president in the sense of the guy who happens to be sitting in the chair at the moment, right? And so, um, you know, that idea that you have to be speaking quay public official in that public capacity is a necessary element of it. Often, though, there's too quick a move between the fact that the person offering the apology is speaking quay public official to them speaking as the representative of the general public. And one of the things I'm going to suggest here is that actually um, most of the time, public officials offering apologies are offering those apologies on behalf of the public sector, understood as the state and its apparatus, rather than offering that a public apology on behalf of the general public. Um, I'm going to suggest that that's the case, and one of the things is, is the argument here is not going to be that it's, it's not about whether or not the general public owns the actions for which apologies are offered. Right? The example I'm going to use is the, the Canadian apology for residential school, and in that case, I'm actually going to suggest there is lots and lots of reason to think that the general public does own those actions in the sense of having responsibility and owing an apology for them. The point here then is not whether or not the general public owns it, it's whether or not there's a, the right kind of relationship between the public sector and the general public such that somebody offering an apology, qua public official in the public sector, actually has the right kind of relationship for that apology to be an apology for the general public. Um, the suggestion I'm going to make is that, uh, you know, there are a bunch of models on which you could think that there's a relationship. Probably one of the most common, though, is the kind of the agent principle model, right? Where uh, the state and the public sector acts as agent to the general public's principle. And uh, that I'm actually going to offer some reasons for thinking not even that relationship obtains. Right? And actually for thinking that's probably a good thing because there is, there's an inherent distance between the public sector and the general public um, that actually makes what it is that the public sector can apologize for on behalf of the general public difficult. And the particular agent principle model actually introduces, the, the way the distancing plays out in those cases actually obscures and establishes this kind of perverse relationship where the general public ends up on the side of those who've been victimized by the action often. And there's this moral community of outrage <laughs> turned against the public sector. Right? Um, and it creates this weird, and I think one of the ways that it plays out, you can see most clearly, is in kind of public apologies for torture. That dynamic is clearly at work. And where not only is there this perverse, you know, community of outrage, right, among the general public and the victims, but there's also a perverse, almost like ennoblement or mitigation of the wrongdoers, insofar as they were acting in their capacity of agents, protecting the public trust, right? So uh, actually, there are reasons to 
kind of, kind of really resist that agent principle model for thinking about the relationship between public sector and public. And I'm going to suggest instead that um, adherence and implication, right, adherence and endorsement is a better way of thinking about the relationship. But essentially what you're looking at is you've got two different collectives here, right? And the public sector and the general public are actually two distinct collectives whose actions are related to one another and engage and intertwine, and sometimes who act and who constitute a larger collective, right, um, in whose action they're implicated. But that understanding the distinction is actually quite important. And uh, at the end, I'll use an example, which I think will be interesting um, in that it triggers all kinds of, it triggers some of the same questions that we've been talking about uh, in terms of like corporate apologies and that kind of thing. But I'm going to try real quick so that there's lots of time for discussion. Okay. So, so let's think about this example of the Canadian Prime Minister offers an official apology, right? So the Stephen Harper's doing this not as the guy he is, he's doing this as the Prime Minister, right? And in some ways, how the guy he is feels about the apology is irrelevant, right? Because the apology is offered qua Prime Minister, qua the position, right? There is this question, though, right now, in theory, Quay Prime Minister, he could be offering that apology. He could be sta standing as a representative of the Canadian state and the public sector and the apparatus of the Canadian state. He could be doing it uh, on behalf of all Canadians generally. And certainly in the rhetoric, he says at one point, on behalf of the government of Canada and all Canadians. I apologize. But when you look at the wrongs that are actually named in the apology, those are the actual names and the specifics of the apology names are actions undertaken by participants in the public sector. And so one of the questions is, you know, um, was so he was definitely apologizing for the public sector, was he also apologizing for all Canadians? Um, and there's a reason to think, well, at, at least one thing that you would think would have to be a condition for him to be speaking both of those capacities would be that Canadians generally understood him to be offering an apology on their behalf. But there's actually lots of evidence when you look at responses to that apology. The Canadians generally did not take him to be apologizing for their actions as well. Um, now that's not to say you know there, there's approval of the apology. There's even a sense of having called for it, right, and a sense of having pressured and pushed the government to do it. But that's not the same as taking what they're apologizing for to be something that you own, in some sense. Right? And there's lots of evidence that Canadians generally do not take themselves to own the actions for which the apology was generated. Right? Now, um, one of the things I want to make totally clear is that saying that Canadians didn't take themselves to be owners of an action is not the same thing as saying that they did not own those actions. Right? And I think uh, there are lots of models and lots of discussions of collective action and collective responsibility that reject and show to be inadequate models of responsibility in which only one actor or only one agent can own an action, right? and in which there has to be some kind of explicit endorsement in order for you to own and participate in the action. Um, my own preferred one is kind of the Margaret Gilbert plural subject account. But you know, in Iris Young's work, she talks about response, collective responsibility, um, structural agency, and uh, Twomala's work talks about the intentions. On many of those models, you can own an action without being the direct initiator of it. Right? Um, you can be a participant in and implicated in an action. And 
on almost any of those models, Canadians generally are implicated in calling to residential schools. Um, so that such that an apology would be owed. I think the real question, though, is, is, is the relationship between the, Canadian, the government of Canada and Canadians generally one in which it actually makes sense to think that Canadians would see the government as apologizing for them, as really in a position to apologize for them? And I'm going to suggest that no. So I want to step back and reflect on the relationship between the public sector and the general public in a typical liberal state. There's a story that gets told, right, where uh, the government is just a vehicle of action for people. None of us believe that story. Right? That story is at best aspirational. Right? Um, even if it's the case that the government acts on behalf of the public and treats it as a public trust, that is not the same thing as being a mere vehicle in reflection of the public, of the general public. Right? And I think. Taken against that background, when we talk about public sector action, we talk about public officials. Public officials, insofar as they are action, they are kind of agents, right? They're agents not of the general public. They're agents of the state. Right? And so the one of the ways to think is that so there's there's a way that public sector action gets talked about and the way that government action gets talked about in which the government is acting as an agent right, of the people. Now, the thing about that model, that kind of agent principle model, is that there's an intrinsic distance there between what the agent does and what the principal, right? Because the relationship is not one where the principal uh, simply gives directives to the agent and the agent acts as kind of an arm to the person's will, right? It's rather that there's a delegation that occurs, you hand it over, and then the agent acts, right? And this distance creates a relationship such that when things go wrong, the implication in the action is not an implication, right? It's more about, um, did I incentivize in a way, right? Did I not exercise proper oversight, right? Was I not clear, right? Um, that distance creates a dynamic in an apology setting, right, where um, actually now you have an opening where the general public, as the principals on the, you can be horrified, right? And in some sense, it's a betrayal of you, right? You, you too are wronged. As the principal, I too am wrong. I'm not harmed, or maybe not harmed in the same sense, but I also am wrong, right? And you have this community that's juxtaposed against the agent who is the wrongdoer, right? And so there is this, there is this further thing, and if you, it becomes very clear when you look at apologies for torture, right? Apologies for war crimes, right? Where actually it also creates this opening for this kind of perverse kind of mitigation of the wrong, right? Because you know, as you know, a kind of a a gross or perverse, a perversion of the trust, right? Um, or a radical mistake of what the limits and the nature of the trust was, right? But the key here is, is that the wrongdoing is entirely owned in a sense here, right? By the agent. And the principal is in some sense exempted from the wrongdoing, right? And this is, a, the way that I describe it is a kind of shield, it's a moral shield. 
where you shield, the, as a principal, you're shielded from the, character, the characterological contamination of the action, right? Where you may be implicated in a responsibility sense, but you're not implicated in a, this is a reflection of me sense. Um, now, in fact, though, I think that this model is not, right, what is actually going on in most people's experiences of state action. Right? I think it's doubtful that members of the public view public sector actors as just executors of tasks and acti activities that they've been delegated for purposes of ensuring that the interests and goals involved are effectively advanced and preserved. Right? We don't typically see public sector actors as executing our trust. Um, that's not to say that we don't think that they're executing a trust, right? But what we see them as agents of is the governing power within our territory. That's to say public sector actors are administrators of the apparatus of the state. Tasks and activities delegated by those who control that apparatus and give that apparatus direction. So, as individual members of the public, you adhere to those directives that issue, right? And you might support its operations, but individual members of the public do that for a bunch of different reasons. Now, there are normative theorists who argue that you may rightly criticize members of the public for failing to support state's operations, failing to adhere to its directives, when members of the public have the opportunity to contribute to the actions, projects, and values of the state. Right? Or another version of that is when the actions, values, projects of the state cohere with members' own projects and values. Right? So let's, let's accept that. Right? We still don't have an agent-principal relationship here. Right? Um, even if it's accepted that that holds for most people in Canada, so, so that you get an obligation to support and adhere, that doesn't in any way establish that you either experience the existence of the state acting as your agent, right? or that there actually is an agent-principal relationship here. You might identify with actions, projects, values that public sector actors have been directed to pursue, but that identification doesn't have to be robust. It just might not be anything more than a sense of being a fellow traveler. Right? And there's no prima facie reason to think that it obtains at all. There's nothing in the constituent of the state's relationship to that state apparatus that tells you that that relationship is gonna obtain. And so here's the example that I'm gonna give to try and get across, right? So let's imagine a hypothetical scenario in which the owners of the Washington, D.C.'s NFL team finally, right, the ownership finally decides to change the team name and logo and issues a formal apology for the previous logo and for resisting calls to change, okay? In this scenario, there's not gonna be any sense that the owners of the team are apologizing on behalf of the fans. Um, they're not gonna be apologizing for anyone other than themselves and participants in the organizational structure through which the team is managed and marketed. Right. And the participants in the organizational structure, they're only gonna be represented in that apology. Qua participants in the organizational structure, not as, the, not as full people, right? So even if they're fans, right, and supported in their everyday life, that's not the part of their activity that the apology is gonna be representing, right? And so fans are rightly going to see that apology. They're rightly going to see that apology as coming from the organization and not coming from themselves. 
And this is going to be the case even if fans, as a group, have undertaken actions. They might have very strong opinions as to whether an apology should happen. right? And they might have done many things. They might owe apology. They might owe repair for many of their own actions. And they might have undertaken those actions because of their identification with the team, because of their relationship to the team. Right? When we think about it, fans as a group, they might have interest bound up with the team. They might identify with the team. They might be committed to the team's project and projects and values. But they're distinct from the group that organizes, manages, and markets the team. They're a distinct group. And that distinctness has implications for how they stand in relation to actions by the team's ownership. Now, this does not entail that they can't be implicated in and responsible for wrongs. Right? But when you recognize that the two groups are distinct, it, one of the things is that the ownership and the organization don't answer directly to the fans. Right? And that there's nothing in the relationship itself that ensures that fans as a group are going to endorse, share, and be committed to the ownership and organization's values and principles. Right? It's going to be, all of those things make a big difference when you make the turn to actually investigating what the fans' implications are in the wrongdoing, what they owe apology for, what they ought to be repaired, and what steps they should take. Right? And this model, I call it an adherence and support model rather than an agent principle model. And one of the things I think is the transparency, like there's distance in both the agency principle model and in the adherence and support model. There's a kind of basic fundamental distance between the actions of the public sector, right, and the actions of the general public, or the actions of the organization and the actions of the fans. So the distance is there in both cases, but in the second case, in the adherence and support case, what you have is a transparency about the distance and a transparency about the nature of the relationship that actually makes it easier to insert questions about implication, to insert questions about complicity, to insert questions about responsibility. Right? Because those questions can't be answered by public sector officials, and everyone else is done in virtue of what public se sector officials um, do. So the suggestion that I'm making is that official apologies represent and speak for the public sector, not the general public. Specifically, it's in these particular cases where action has been done via the public sector, right, that actually it makes for more openness and more clarity in discussions of what the general public's implication is, what their responsibilities are. Right? Um, and so part of this is a question about who the apologizing subject is. Um, yeah. 